Welcome to Brave. Be inspired by the best leaders of Southeast Asia tech. Build the future, learn from our past, and stay human in between. I'm Jeremy Ao, a VC founder and father. Join us for transcripts, analysis, and community at www.jeremyao.com. Hi, Joshua. Really excited to have you on the show. It's been so many years that we've known each other since our Boston days as founders. And I think it's been amazing to see your growth, not just from a company perspective, but also your personal growth as a leader during this time. So I'd love for you, Joshua, for you to share a little bit about yourself. Yeah, Jeremy, thanks for inviting me on the show. It's, it's really a great honor. Just to quickly introduce myself. I mean, you said my name. Yeah, I'm Josh, Joshua Wang. Four things to, I guess, four things about me as key takeaways. Number one, I'm Singaporean, born and raised. I've actually been away for 16 years now, but most of my life I was a Singaporean. I mean, I still am. Number two, I consider myself a vaccine scientist. That's my technical training. That's what I, I, I studied in my education. Number three, currently I am the founding CEO of a game-changing company called Vermute. This is a biotech company pioneering this new modality to target cancer by repurposing your acquired immunity. And uh, really excited about what we're doing here at Vermune. We are currently in growth stage. We just recently closed our seed round. We have some partnership with Pharma. So we're really looking to rock and roll. In some many interesting ways, I, I consider myself an accidental bioentrepreneur. So happy to talk about that later. And finally, I think this is what I'm most proud of. I am a father, just like you. I have a 10-month-old. <laughs> and so it's been a great privilege and pleasure to watch him, uh, my kid, grow up. He's 10 months old now. So, yeah, so just to summarize, you know, Singaporean, vaccine scientist, accidental entrepreneur, founder, and uh, father. I think I just told your... your your team show, you know, like how <laughs> you introduce yourself, the one, two, three, four. Yeah, no, amazing. And I think being a father, yeah, it is a pleasure, privilege and pressure. So I think it's spot on. <laughs> so, oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, the blooper was perfect. I think what's interesting, obviously, is i got to go to the beginning, right? Which is that, you know, you've loved biology for a long, long time, right? Uh, and vaccines and you studied it at uh, Imperial College London, and then later a PhD at John Hopkins, right? So what triggered that love for biology and biotech? Yeah, that's a good question. And that love actually stemmed from the fact that in biology, actually, that, you know, if you think about it, there's actually always an exception to the norm. That's why I like biology, actually. I remember even in my early schooling days, you know, people used to tell me, you know, because uh, I, I like the sciences in general, but biology was my favorite and physics actually was my least. Part of it actually was because people would tell me and my teachers would say, you know, physics is common sense. You know, the laws of the universe are governed by physics and they're not wrong. But it kind of felt like you were sort of trapped in this realm. I, I'm sure there are stuff in physics where it's not the norm and there's outliers, but it kind of felt like physics, everything is locked in this box and in its place. But for biology, there was always an exception. Life will find a way, as you know, the Jurassic Park movie likes to say. <laughs> we go to the volcanoes, it's all damn hot, but you can still some find some bacteria living there. I don't know how it mutated its genome to be able to survive there. If you go to the deep oceans, there's no oxygen, but somehow, you know, you can find life there. And so I, I really like the fact that there might be some unknown rules there, that outlier in biology. And, and it, 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 it fascinated me, it excited me. And so I, I, I was drawn toward that science 
essentially. And I didn't know this at the time, but I was always actually interested in drug development, like how to create new medicines to 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 help people. I just didn't really understand it or, or define it so succinctly. I just I found that out through my path slowly as I gravitated towards my entrepreneurship. But back then, you know, I it was more holistic. Like it was more because I was like, well, there's always an exception to the rule in biology. And I like that, you know, so it, it felt like there's always a, an outlier. And, and that, that's what attracted me to it. The rules were still waiting to be written, I guess, in a way. I love biology too. You know, I was a pre-med. I wanted to be a vaccine scientist when I was a, a kid because I saw Dr. David Ho, yeah, oh, really? on the Time Man of the Year for, you know, HIV and cancer and AIDS vaccine not vaccine work, HIV and AIDS, uh, you know, kind of drug cocktail mix work. And I wanted to be a vaccine scientist, but uh, I realized that the lab was not for me. The PhD route seemed like a bummer <laughs> for me. And what's interesting is that you chose to become a PhD, right? You doubled down on that pathway. So tell us more about what is it like to be a PhD? Most fundamentally, I think it's a path of actually objective thinking. Because at the end of the day, you know, I'll speak more towards life sciences and biomedical PhDs because I'm sure there's generalities, but I, I prefer to just speak about stuff that I've gone through. So I, I believe it's a lot about objective thinking, a lot about thinking about frameworks in, in some ways, about a problem and about how can you go about solving that problem and answering questions around that specific problem. I, I think that's root and essence, you know, that's what actually a PhD is all about. My wife likes to joke about this, but PhD stands for Doctor of Philosophy. I think if we go back to what actually the early days of PhD is really all about just thinking and thought experiments and, and, and really being able to address certain questions and, and give good answers, I guess. And, and, and that's what you do in your PhD. You have a thesis topic is a central question and then you spend years taking that question apart and you know, trying to show data or, or I guess evidence or you know, whatever to, to, to address that. That's very important to remember because especially in the life sciences, you know, sometimes when you have a PhD project, it doesn't always go well. Sometimes you're doing research, right? So sometimes the research fails, you don't get what you want. But at the end of the day, I think you need to remember you, you were trying to answer a question and unfortunately that question led to a result where everything is negative. Let's say you were trying to figure out whether X correlated with Y. In a perfect scenario, it does. And then, you know, you have all this data and publications to show that, it, you know, it correlates together. In reality, because it's research, sometimes it doesn't. And even though you have all the data to show that it doesn't correlate, it's not exactly great. Nobody really publishes negative data, but I think it's important for the, the PhD candidate to remember that and should they should be proud of themselves that they actually did everything correctly to show that X doesn't correlate to Y. And it's true that iterative process, you know, that if they did everything correctly, you know, I think they should be proud of themselves. Because at the end of the day, when you leave your PhD, you should have that they have that skills of being able to objectively think and approach and address a question. And that's the real skill you get from those, you know, four, five, six years of additional education. And what's interesting is that you did this PhD so many years and you chose not to go to academia, and you chose to become a founder, right? Yeah. And that's an uncommon pathway, regardless of anything, right? So how did you catch this entrepreneurship bug? What was that choice in that leap? It's ironic, actually, because everything that I, you know, my entire life choice was actually, I was trying to escape entrepreneurship. So I'm going to answer your questions in two parts. I'll tell you, like, why I find this ironic, because I actually grew up in a family of entrepreneurs. 
I actually sought paths that would take me away from it. <laughs> my father himself has run three businesses and I saw two of them fail. And so I, I you know, from a very young age, I was like, oh, I, I don't want to do this. I went to Imperial College to do microbiology, but what I, I don't tell, what people don't know actually is before that, I, I actually went to do an undergraduate course in business also in the UK, but three months in, I was like, no, this is not for me. And I actually quit and uh, waited for nine months to restart my microbiology course. Everything was making me focus more on going into doing the life sciences and really focusing on, on vaccines, vaccine and uh, using viruses as platforms to target the different diseases. So that's the first part I thought was ironic that I, I was trying to avoid it. But as I did my PhD, I, I started to realize that academic life was not what I wanted. I wanted to make sure that I continued to pursue my, my, my soul. At that point in time, I didn't realize this. I was trying to get myself to be part of the drug development industry. I just didn't really understand it back then. I just knew I wanted to work on vaccines, but I didn't want to work it within the frameworks of academia. And part of this was also because I was in a very translational PhD lab. My mentor made many different kinds of exciting therapeutics and vaccines. At that point of time, how these technologies would get out to the market is a big pharma or biotech company would come and license it. And so I saw how he would have his technologies. There was one particular example where he's, he had this very fascinating technology that a big, big global pharma licensed and it just sat on the shelf and it was sort of trapped there. And there was nothing he could do because it was the university's technology. You know, he'd given up the rights and it was just sad. And I was thinking to myself, and this this might sound presumptuous, but I was thinking, well, you know, I want to go and be able to do what my mentor did also. But should the off chance be that I, I become a successful academic and I actually have all these cool products, I don't want a situation where it's stuck there on the shelf. You know, I, I, I want to see it go all the way. I mean, that's what I, I spend studied so hard for and, 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 you know, build a career towards. That's when I think the whole idea of trying to do it yourself in, in a, with a team and doing bioentrepreneurship actually started to take root and started to take form. I was still, it was still a primitive thought at that time, but I, I, I started to gravitate towards doing that. What's interesting is that you became a founder with uh, you know, three months of business experience, right? <laughs> and, <laughs> and many years of experience in biology. Although I, I kind of say it's uncommon within PhDs, but I think if you zoom out, it's just actually there's a lot of people who are primarily scientists or engineers who are transitioning to that founder and CEO role, right? So could you share a little bit more about what challenges you had to overcome or what personal growth you had to do in order to become a founder and leader? I would say the biggest thing I had to overcome, and I'm still trying to, to master this, is in many ways being brave and having that self-confidence to take responsibility and, and, and try. When you start out as a founder of any company, I guess, and you want to push forward, you know, something that you've never done before, I think you're going to get a lot of negative. I won't say negative, but people will tell you that, you know, you can't do it. I mean, basically, that was what happened when me and my some of my classmates and my mentors had to co-found our first biotech startup. There was a lot of, I wouldn't say negative, but I think there was a lot of feedback that, you know, you guys are just too inexperienced. You guys don't know what you're doing. Vaccine development is hard. What I've learned is, you know, you, you have to accept that that is, the, that is the truth. We are inexperienced vaccine or drug development, development. Drug development in general is hard. But if you wanted to do it, you know, you, you would take that no or rejection and, and, and ask them, well, what can I do to be better? What, what would make you actually think otherwise? It's very interesting, actually. The moment when somebody tells you no 
it's actually a very liberating and uh, it's a great opportunity for all of founders actually because the person at the other end of the table actually now has nothing to lose. And so you actually can get the best feedback and information from them. And, and you could use that to distill, you could distill that and actually use that to help your company get better. One of the, the most uh, available free resource on this planet beyond sunlight <laughs> is a person's opinion when they say no. <laughs> and I actually found that to be true. The other thing I think that is, um, so yeah, just wrapping up the first thing that I think I've grown a lot is having more confidence to take the nose and to actually be thick-skinned enough to ask, well, why no? I think the second thing is very important that, I've, that, I've, that I'm also still trying to master and craft is the, the skill of discernment. I think as you try to build a company and move forward, you are going to get a lot of feedback, advice, and sometimes very well-meaning, well-intentioned advice that actually doesn't apply to your company and doesn't apply to your situation at a point of time. And if you take it, you might actually hurt your company. This whole skill of being able to discern advice, discern the situation, taking taking a step back, and and this might not work for everyone. By the way, you know, I'm I'm more. I guess it's because I'm a scientist at heart. I'm more data driven, <laughs> so I like to analyze. Maybe I overanalyze, but I, I realize that being able to discern and figure out, you know, being able to discern and figure out what is this advice actually telling me, and does it really apply to my company at this point of time. It's very critical because you are making decisions every day that could have long-term implications and people are working for your startup. Their rice bowls are directly affected by your decision. And so you need to make the best choices at that point of time. And I think those two things are skills that I'm still trying to craft, still trying to master. I would say I'm, I'm getting better at it, but I'm not there yet, I would say. There are a lot of other things as well. I think as you learn as a founder, I was going to share two things, but I think I'm just going to throw in one last thing is... Um, one thing I've learned also along the way is don't be too hard on yourself. After you get all the feedback and after you do the discernment, you're still working on imperfect information. Sometimes it works out, sometimes it doesn't. I think earlier on when I in, in my startup uh, founder career, I was quite hard on myself when, when something doesn't go well. And at the end of the day, right, you know, you still have to pick you still have to chin up and move forward. If you wanted to move forward, as you used to tell me, Jeremy, if you want something to happen, you know, you'll find a way. (laughs) Those are some of the things I guess I've learned along the way. Wow, there's a lot of wisdom there. It feels like, frankly, night and day difference between when we used to hang out and discuss all of this years ago and where you are today. I guess the past three years have been like dog years, I guess, (laughs) you know, seven years for every year. Yeah, uh, in terms of training and experience. Yeah, I started uh, Vermune almost two and a half years ago, and it was literally right at the start of the pandemic. So yeah, you're right. It, it was quite an, a journey <laughs> trying to run everything, run a lab remotely, fundraise remotely, and uh, build a team remotely. Now everyone's coming back to the lab, everyone's coming back to the office, everyone's you know seeing each other again. But yeah, it was quite an interesting time. Markets were acting funny, and um, there was a lot of uncertainty, but I'm glad we we as a company and team managed to uh, overcome all of that. Yeah, and what's interesting is that your company is doing something amazing, right? Which is about combining you know, your previous work in terms of vaccine and immune system, but also using that to go kill cancer, which is an amazing trick, an amazing magic there. And I think there's so much promise in that field. Could you share a little bit more for those who don't understand what it means, what you're doing? Yeah, sure. So what we're doing at, at Vermune is essentially 
we're tricking the body to see cancer as a past infection. So the idea here is that maybe taking a step back, let's talk about the fundamental problem of uh, cancer therapy right now. On one end of the spectrum, people have been trying to create vaccines that target cancer for, I guess, over 30, 40 years now. And, you know, it's similar to the idea of creating vaccines against infectious diseases, right? I think everybody's more educated on this now because of COVID. But um, the whole idea is creating an immune response that would target the virus or, you know, the infected cell. And so they are trying to apply this knowledge to target cancer. But it doesn't work very well because cancer fundamentally is a disease from within. It's, it's, a cancer, it's due to mutations in your body and whatnot. You're relying on, on the immune system to target your own self. The immune system has been trained over the years not to target yourself. It's target foreign invaders. So it's, it's very hard to actually create a cancer vaccine to, to target cancer. And cancer happens you know, in any age, but it happens predominantly in the elderly population where your immune system is already a little bit off. It's old. It's not as good as it used to be. So it's hard to create that immune response. On the flip side, there are new technologies now that, that are trying to unleash, you know, dormant anti-cancer responses in your body because, uh, you know, cancer doesn't happen overnight. It happens over time. But the problem is, like I said, you know, immune response was never trained to actually target yourself. So you have one end of the spectrum where everyone's focusing on where they're trying to unleash a response that doesn't exist. On the other end of the spectrum, there are people trying to create a response, but it's so hard to create. So for Vermune, I think fundamentally what we were trying to ask before we even came up with a product or anything was, well, what is it in your body that is lifelong, that is protective and it clears diseases? And it was an aha moment for us when we realized, oh, wait, that's your immunity against certain viruses like measles, chickenpox, your immunity against the flu. Yeah, unfortunately, you get the flu, but you sleep it off after two weeks, right? So can we repurpose that kind of immunity and use that to target cancer. Well, how do we do that? You know, can we trick the body to see cancer as the flu? Can we trick the body to see cancer as chickenpox? And from that idea, you know, we started to work out a plan of action on, well, how can we take that idea and actually convert it into an actual new approach to target cancer? What kind of platform can we create? How are we going to do this? And I, I could not have done this alone. The scientists who thought about it, I wrote a grant to generate some proof of concept but I, I think I went around talking to a lot of people about this and was very lucky to, to meet, talk to more seasoned biotech uh, business veterans who said, well, Josh, this is great science, but you need a product development guy. And that's actually how I met uh, our current COO uh, who helped me a lot and worked with me to, to mature the company and develop, a, you know, help do a product development line and everything. But yeah, I'm, I'm sort of going off tangent a little bit, but that was essentially the main uh, motivation to start Vermune. We wanted to find another way to target cancer that was using a totally different way because everybody was just doing the same thing in, in, and that frustrated me in many ways. That's amazing and cancer obviously afflicts so many people, everybody, and it's uh, you know number one killer in developed worlds, right? Because you know everything else has been uh, figured out uh, from you know heart attacks to other things, but cancer is really a big one there. And obviously, biotech is obviously a huge, huge, huge source of innovation and the savior to solve and hopefully knock down cancer by one peg or two pegs or 10 pegs. But what's interesting is that biotech startups are known to be hard, right? You know, it's known to be hard, it's known to be stressful, it's also very science-based. Could you share about why biotech innovation is so hard? I think biotech is hard because of several reasons and First and foremost, most of the time you are fundamentally trying to pioneer or develop a new, 
a new drug or, or medical device that, or, or I don't know what now these days, or you know, even digital stuff that banks on some totally new, new discovered halfway in your body or, or like some sort of new scientific groundbreaking research. And so you're banking on that. And obviously not everything has been sort of resolved. It's, it's still research in a way. And a lot of times the research is done on model systems and, and actually not on actual humans. So you are actually taking this proof of concept, you're translating into a product, and then you actually have to test it in humans. So you're actually doing this one big gigantic experiment, which could fail because not all, you know, every single model out there has its recognized limitations. So that's problem number one. Problem number two, I think, is the regulatory pathways. Because you are actually fundamentally, in the end of the day, putting this in, in people, there's a certain bar that you need to meet, uh, not only in terms of the data, but in terms of the quality of the, the things, that, you know, the products that you make. So in my area where it's more biologics, and, you know, like drugs and medicine, you have to make sure that you have a high quality reproducible manufacturing process. You, have, you need to show that you have quality systems in place, that your, your product does what it says it's going to be doing. You need to be able to scale up that manufacturing and you need to prove that it's safe. So there's all these other layers of things that you need to do. And you need people who actually have, need people who know how to do this to get it done. Compared to tech companies, actually, biotech in many ways does require a certain level of gray hair experience because you are going to be doing a lot of manufacturing and quality and FDA interactions that they don't teach you in school. They, you know, you, you, you never learn about it, right? You, you, I didn't know about it. I, had to, I actually went through, I had to like, uh, I'm still learning about it, to be honest. And so that, that's a level of difficulty and complexity to, you know, a regular tech company where I won't say that the, the regulatory hurdles are less, but I think it's just you could bank on less experience in, in some ways. And I think that experience factor also, unfortunately, and this is the third point, the experience requirement actually is a factor, I think, that goes into investors' minds when they evaluate biotech startups. They might see a founder and say, oh, this guy is enthusiastic, you know, he's, he's trustworthy, you know, the science looks good, but does he have the team, the, the right experience to actually bring this to the next level? And if the team doesn't seem to show that they have that, I think it might dissuade the investor from, from actually taking a chance and a risk. There's all these different layers that make biotech harder. I'm sure there are more, but at the top of my mind, these are the top three. So, you know, the science is, it needs to be proven in humans. There's a lot of additional regulatory factors. And finally, you know, there's that experience thing that is much more expected and required, essentially, compared to other uh, realms of uh, tech technology startups. That's a great explanation and insight of your why biotech is hard. How do you advise founders to overcome those three challenges? I think the most important thing is to accept that you really don't know a lot of these things. And... I would advise founders, especially aspiring founders who want to start biotech companies, to to actually try to surround themselves with with, with advisors and, and, and people who actually have done this and not be afraid of seeking out these people and, and getting the advice as you try to put together your development plan and, and your plan to scale the company. It's very, very critical because there are people out there who have done this before, for sure. It just takes effort from the founder to go and find these people to get the right advice to to move move things ahead, and then you can apply. You know what I just mentioned about discernment, <laughs> I'm not being too hard on yourself, and all those things. But 
I would advise founders to to go out and 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 talk to as many. It's it's actually the same advice as any startup founder should get, right? But I think for biotech, it's just so much more necessary. A lot more, I guess, resilience is required because sometimes you might not be able to find the right person, and it's going to take a while before you do. Just because you know there's so many different kinds of of uh, technology out there, also. So that will that will probably be one of the key advice I would I would say, and just be prepared that they might give you things that you might not want to hear, but discern and try to understand what they're actually trying to say and how you can apply that to your path, your product. Wow, I agree with you that being a startup founder is hard, and yet. Doing a biotech or deep tech founder, where the science and testing that giant experiment is actually a fundamental uh, hurdle that needs to be overcome, and much more thoroughly prepared for with the right experience and right thoughtfulness is quite true. And it must have been a tough time for you as you built these companies. Could you share with us about times that you've been brave? Yeah, I told you in the beginning that I was actively looking not to do entrepreneurship. <laughs> And I was like seeking more of a path of, of being a vaccine scientist. And I, I thought, and I, I mentioned to you that you know I, I uh, went to business school actually. And after three months, I decided this wasn't for me, and I really wanted to pursue an education and a training in in the life sciences. And so I quit my studies. I didn't tell my parents. I just secretly reapplied and waited to be accepted before telling them, which obviously they were not very happy. And I think you and I, we are from Singapore. You know, we grew up in a time where you know you don't just quit things. You don't just quit. Uh, you you have to power on whatever you're you're given. And so I'm privileged that I was able to study microbiology subsequently. I was lucky that my dad was able to support me in that. But fundamentally, still, you know, I faced quite a bit of backlash when I came back. Everybody was like, "Why are you a quitter? Why did you do this?" And there were times where I was like, "Well, did I do the right? Did I make the right decision?" But looking back, this was the one of the best decisions that I made in my life because it propelled me towards this training and education that gave me the technical background that I need to subsequently, at the end of the day, become a founder in this particular vaccine therapeutic space. And if I had never made this decision, you know, it would never have. It worked out in the end, right? But had I not been brave, I guess back then to to say to let go and quit and and move to what I believed in. What I truly believed, I believed in, and was interested in, I think I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you today. And I think back to this moment a lot because it, it was a very pure moment where it wasn't really quitting; it was really like being true to yourself. And I think as a founder, there will be many moments where you would have to make difficult decisions, not like this, but you know, in some other form or way. Making these difficult decisions are hard, and sometimes you know because you're afraid of the backlash, you're afraid of people won't like you or, or whatever it is. But if the intentions are pure, if it's an intention that it makes the most sense and it's not self-serving, it's it's for the best for the company. I think it, it will work out in some way or form, and I think that's so. I, I that's 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 the moment I wanted to share about being brave because I think it subsequently led me to be braver in many ways down the road. Uh, in terms of making decisions, and I think as founders, we have to make a lot of difficult decisions all the time, and it requires bravery, I guess, <laughs> in many ways, and being brave enough to accept the consequences. Not every time it will it will work out. Sometimes it doesn't, and you need to power on. Now that you have chosen to be a father of your own as well, with your own child, how would you? Coach or counsel your children to be thinking about their career and their aspirations. 
Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know, Jeremy. I think the first thing I would do is actually um, talk to other parents. <laughs> I'll apply my startup advice. You know, <laughs> I'll talk to other parents first and see how they what what they do. I I actually don't know the the answer to that. To be honest, I would say that if just thinking off the top of my head, I think if my kid came to me and asked and said that they want to do this, I think I would be encouraging to them. But I think I would also tell them that as they try to move towards a certain career if at any point of time they start to realize that it's actually not for them, they should take a step back and, and ask themselves, why are you suddenly feeling this way? Is it because you don't want to do this anymore because it's hard and you are, are you really not wanting to do this particular career path because it's just hard and you're lazy and you don't want to like do it? Or are you just truly genuinely not interested in it? You, you thought it was something, but then it turned out not to be. Like, you know, you mentioned that you want to be a vaccine scientist yourself, but you realize that academic science isn't just for you. In a similar way, you know, I actually wanted to be a medical doctor. Also, I, I actually thought about pre-med and all that stuff, but I realized that I didn't want to be a doctor. I just wanted to be more towards in the field of drug development and biologics. Some people are very lucky. They they want to be something and it's they've never, ever questioned their choices. But for, I think, the rest of us, as we start to understand what, what that career ambition, what the choice is, you know, we start to realize, actually, that's not exactly what we want. And so I think um, that's what I would advise them. And my last question is, you shared about how being true to yourself and having that personal truth in the face of backlash, whatever it is, is important. How does one come to a better self-awareness of what that personal truth is? That's a good question again, Jeremy. <laughs> and I think the you'll know it in, in some way or form. You'll feel it. You, you can lie to everybody, but you can't lie to yourself in the mirror. After some time, somehow, you will know whether it's the truth or not. I think a lot of times when we talk to people also for advice and, and stuff like that and trying to achieve that personal wellness, we actually already have a, some sort of bias in our mind already. Like, this is actually the decision I want to take. And actually, you're actually looking for affirmation. You're actually not looking for <laughs> advice. I think it's a difficult skill. It requires one person to, to know. You, you will know it, I, I think, when, when that time comes. That's unfortunately how I would put it. I, I don't know how else to, put, to, to explain this, unfortunately. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. I would love to paraphrase the three big things that I got away from this. The first is thank you for sharing about your journey from PhD to founder. I really appreciate it about you sharing your love for biology and how you chose to actually switch from studying business to being a PhD and doing biology. But also, I think your career decision where you decided that you wanted to not be in academia, but also be able to translate these innovations and inventions into the real world, while also drawing on your family's history of entrepreneurship. So a really interesting journey there. The second, of course, is thank you so much for sharing about how you and your team is going about to kill cancer using trickery. And I think that was a great explanation about what's going on with biologics, but also with uh, the promise of vaccine therapy. And I also appreciated you giving a very quick overlay about why biotech startups are hard, not just for the individual founder, but also on a structural level, right? In terms of regulations, in terms of the fundamental science and experiments being run across systems, but also in terms of the amount of experiences needed by the system to push you forward. And lastly, thank you so much for sharing about your personal moment where the toughest decision regarding you know, your choice of studies from business to biology, but also later on, some mind melding of those two again from academia to entrepreneurship. 
that backlash versus you know holding your own personal truth is a really interesting um, set of decisions about not being hard on yourself and not being hard on your child and being true to yourself is uh, with some clear eye of discernment is uh, really good advice. So thank you so much, Joshua, for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks, Jeremy. Uh, appreciate it, and uh, hope someone can learn something from this. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening to Brave. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share this episode with friends and colleagues. Sign up at www.jeremyao.com to discuss this episode with other community members in our forum. Stay well and stay brave. Stay brave.